Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. This is the show where we talk with artists about how to get better at painting. If you aren't on the newsletter, head to learn to paint podcast slash podcast slash episode 11 to add your name and you'll get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. Thanks to all of you who responded to my note in the newsletter this last week. Your emails made me feel so lucky to be part of the artist community, which is what we are. We're a community. And I just wanted to make a quick acknowledgement about what's happening right now. This episode is going live March 23rd, 2020. There's a big scary thing happening out in the world and in our own neighborhoods. One of the ways I'm dealing with fear, and it's there every day like some aggressive noise, is painting and drawing. I'm learning to paint, and so I'm making myself, and some days it feels like that, go into my studio and paint a small and fairly quick painting every day. And I make it most days. Some of the paintings I like a lot. Some are pretty eh, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that I'm showing up, And what matters even more is that I feel better afterwards every single time. Art can't fight a virus, but it can be one of our tools against fear. I'd love to hear what you're doing to keep yourself showing up. Send me a note at learntopaintpodcast at gmail.com. So onto the show. This is the color episode. You're going to want to grab your notebook, a pen, and a color wheel if you have it. Today I'm talking with artist and professor Mark Eanes, and we're talking mostly about color. Eanes will explain the basics of color, the various characteristics of color and color relationships, and why it all matters. You're going to have so many ideas for practicing color after this conversation. You'll also hear a bunch of technical terms in this episode, and we don't shy away from technical art terms in this show. But if you are a very, very beginner, head to the show notes and I break them down a bit so you're not starting from nothing. All right, here we go. Hi, Mark. Thank you for being with us today. How did you get started in painting? I was fortunate. I went to high school in Virginia on the East Coast, and as soon as I graduated, I was having difficulty with my father, who I was living with, and I ran away. Later, I made up with my dad, by the way. But at 17, Kelly, I ran away. I ran away from home, and I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. My uncle, who lived here in the Bay Area, took me in and said in the first week, what about college? I said, I have no idea. He said, well, think about it. I'll I'll help you without a state for junior college for the first two years. I went up to my bedroom at my uncle's. I was 17 going on 18. And I had a sketchbook with me. And I thought, this is really a gift. My uncle is offering me a gift. I have this gift. There are really two gifts here involved. One is my gift to be creative because I've always enjoyed drawing. And the other is, my uncle is offering me a gift to help me with college. So I ran downstairs within the hour, because I literally looked at the sketchbook and thought, maybe I could do this, maybe I could do art. And I ran downstairs and I told my uncle, I want to be an artist. (laughs) He was a businessman, Kelly. (laughs) So 
So he wasn't very excited about that choice. But we went to go see a counselor at school. And the counselor said, well, Mark, you know, you can go into commercial arts or you can go into fine arts. And I said, please explain the difference. And he did. And I chose fine arts instead of commercial arts. And again, my uncle was a little upset because he was thinking, you're going to suffer. You're going to, you know, you're going to starve. You'll always have an old car or whatever. And I, I said, you know what? I really feel I can do this. And God bless my uncle. He said, let's give it a shot. So at 18 years old, I took my first painting and drawing class. I had two or three wonderful teachers, and I was hooked. I mean, that was it. There was no looking back. And I had lots of jobs in between. I was a gardener. I was a house painter. I've done just about everything imaginable to, you know, take care of that habit. And I've been doing it. I'm coming up on 50 years now. Next year, I'm celebrating my 50th year of making art. And uh, I was lucky. Just right place at the right time. You went to art school, so you're classically trained. What has that given you as an artist? And for students who are self-taught, how do they even begin to start to get some of that? Not everyone needs to be formally trained. It really depends on the individual and what they want to do. There's a great history of people who were never trained. There are lots of terms for these artists. Folk artists is one. Outsider art is another. I don't think any of these terms really nail it down. But the point here is that for some individuals, no training is required whatsoever. If they enjoy squeezing out paint and just doing what comes natural to them, I think that's perfectly fine. And I want to make that point because for a lot of people, I think they're inhibited to do just that because they feel they need the training. And so there is a great history of individuals who chose not to and did wonderful stuff. However, <laughs> to go back to the original part of your question, what it provided me with is a deep understanding of the formal issues and principles and guidelines and language of drawing and painting. So just as, let's say, with music, where you could figure out on a piano how to play without any guidance, you can only say or do so much at some point, and to learn the language, to learn to read music, etc., really gives you many more tools and much more language. And I think this is true for all the arts, dance, literature, cinema. It's really about language and understanding the guiding principles, the formal issues. And as a student, both as an undergraduate and later as a graduate, and to this day, I consider myself the perennial student. I'm always trying to discover and explore new avenues of expression. It always comes back to that, having the tools, having the language to say that much more. So the more I know about color, the more I can say when I'm in my studio. So I have to share an anecdote with you. The other day, someone said to me, oh, I can't draw, I can't paint. I'm so excited that you can do that. I hear this a lot. And here's what I say to them, Kelly. I say, well, I, I'm going to take up this argument. If you wanted to learn to play guitar tomorrow, you would buy a guitar. And if you were smart, you'd find a good teacher and you would do your homework. It is a skill set. You would learn to read music. You would learn to play the chords. And eventually you would learn to play music. Now, there's a point where you're just learning the fundamentals of playing that guitar, but with great practice, you actually start to feel it, and then you really are becoming a musician. Well, the same is true of visual arts, and I make this argument because I've worked with absolute beginners. If you want to learn to draw from observation, you would hopefully find a teacher or two or three. You would do your homework, and before you know it, you're drawing from observation. And I would say the same is true for painting, that there are many ways to find good people to work with and learn what there is to learn about painting, whether it's from observation or not. 
What attracted you then to abstract? What does abstraction give you as an artist to play with or think about? Well, let's start with uh, Cy Twombly, who I believe said that all art is abstract, and I tend to agree with that. Or another saying that I like, I don't know who the author is, is that uh, if you scratch an abstract painting, just below the surface lies a landscape. Not necessarily a literal landscape, but a landscape of the mind. And again, abstract is a tricky notion. Another way of saying it is non-representational painting. Because if you make a painting that's uh, a canvas that's all blue, let's say minimal, you still have the reference of sky. We tend to make associations and references as human beings visually. So that's a that's a starting sort of premise. And there's so many ways to see the world, quote, abstractly. And that's part of how I view my own abstractions. I look at old walls, for instance, when I travel. I'm just fascinated by the history of old walls, doors and portals and windows, the, the layers of paint and color. And these old walls have stories that they can tell. Who came along and did graffiti? Who put a poster here? Who scraped their motorcycle up against the wall? I mean, you know, what it is, it's like these, they have stories, they have history. And in my own paintings, I attempt to illustrate that because I like to work in layers. I add, I subtract, I scrape. And so I am attempting, in a way, to reflect my love of those old walls. So we're going to start to jump into color. Mm-hmm. What's important to understand about color? Like the very first things when someone's entering this incredibly complicated world of color. Color is light. And why is light so important when understanding color? Take an apple, put it on the kitchen table and look at it in the morning, in the morning light, let's say it's near the window. And then as the day progresses and the light changes, come back and look at that apple again, right up to the point where it's midnight and now there's no light in the room. So it goes from this bright red to a dull red to I can hardly see it. So our perception of color is based on light. So that's the number one thing, just to understand that light is color and our perception of color is constantly shifting because of that. The next important thing I think to understand about color through light is the spectrum of color that is a phenomenon. So if you think about a rainbow, let's discuss that for a second. If I were to put a prism, a nice big glass prism, and dangle it in my window of my studio, on my wall, a spectrum of color will appear, a rainbow. And it goes through all the colors. Well, that's useful because when mixing color, and now I'm gonna get to the more specifics, The biggest mistake I think that young or early beginner paintings can make, Kelly, is to put too many colors out on their palette. If you put 10 colors out on your palette, it's going to be overwhelming. Like, what do I do? What do I do? So in my workshops and in my classes, the first thing I do is explain to the painters how with three primary colors, any yellow, any red, any blue, those are so-called primary colors. You cannot mix those colors. But with those three primary colors plus white, you can create not hundreds, but thousands of colors. But then it gets a little more involved because, and this comes back to our spectrum of the rainbow on the wall. In teaching color, it's necessary to explain that yellow has both a warm yellow and a cool yellow. And that with red, there is a warm red and a cool red. Same with blue, a warm blue and a cool blue. Why is this the case? Well, first of all, we need to understand that our association of warm and cool with colors is man-made. What do I mean by that? Well, your warm colors are yellow, yellow-orange, orange, orange, red, red red-orange, red-violet. 
Why are they, quote, warm? Because of our associations, heat, sun, fire, etc. So we, we say, okay, those are warm. That makes sense. Same with the cool colors. Yellow, green, green, blue, blue, green, blue, violet. Why are they cool? Associations. You have the sky, you have water, you have ice, all these cool associations. Now in the spectrum of color, let's discuss a cool yellow versus a warm yellow. If you're looking at that rainbow on your wall, the spectrum of light and color, you'll notice that one yellow is moving towards yellow-orange while the other part of that yellow spectrum is moving towards yellow-green. So the yellow on the spectrum that's moving towards yellow-green is a cooler yellow. The yellow that's moving on the spectrum towards a yellow-orange is a warmer yellow. That's why when you go into the paint store and you're overwhelmed by 18,000 tubes of paint, <laughs> all you really need are two yellows, a cool yellow and a warm yellow, and you can do a lot with that. Same is true with the red. One red is moving towards part of the spectrum that's cooler and the other towards warmer. So then we end up in my workshops with two yellows, two reds, and two blues, plus white. Now this is useful because now your language is even more rich. And I'll give you another example, and this is really critical. I asked my students on the first day, have you ever tried to mix a color and just couldn't get it? You had it in your mind's eye, a certain green, a certain orange. I get a lot of heads nodding yes. I said, chances are you were starting off with the wrong primary colors. So here's a good example. If you're trying to mix a violet, a nice, strong, vivid, saturated violet or purple, and you're using the wrong blue with the wrong red, it's not going to work. So I'll give you a specific example. If you mix a cobalt blue, which is a cool blue, with a cadmium red, which is a warm red, your violet is going to be very grayed out. However, if you use an alizarin crimson, which is a cool red, with an ultramarine blue, which is a warm blue, they work very beautifully together to give you a pretty vibrant and saturated purple or violet. So knowing what colors will work. Here's another example. If you want a very vibrant green, nice and saturated, intense green, because you're painting, oh, I don't know, a field of grass, and you use, let's say, a cadmium yellow deep, which is really warm, with an ultramarine blue, which is a warm blue, you're going to get this sort of muted green. It's not going to be very vibrant. It's because of the nature of those two colors that you started with. On the other hand, if you use a cool yellow, like a Hans or a lemon yellow, with a cobalt blue or a yellow blue, which are cool blues, you get this vibrant green, you see. So knowing about the warm and cool primary colors is the first thing that we do in the workshops, and it's one of the first principles that I teach at the college as well. Well, and that also sounds powerful because then you can, if you don't want a saturated color, if you, let's say you still want a green, but you don't want one of those greens that just blinds you, you can exactly. make it more subtle. Like suddenly you have the power exactly. to mix. That's a good point. If you want a muted orange, let's say, you'll know what yellow and what red to use versus a very vibrant. Now, we're just at the surface now because as you get deeper into it, the next level of discussion, okay, Kelly, is to discuss three guiding principles when painting with color. Hue, which is another word for color. Value, which is how light or how dark a color is. And saturation, which is how intense or vivid a color is. Well, whenever you are making a painting, for every move that you make in the painting, you have to decide what color am I going to use, what will its value be, and how saturated or not will that color be. So you can't get away from that, those decisions. 
Now, in a given painting, you can have a wide range of possibilities. Let's say if I wanted a painting that has a wide range of hue and a wide range of value and a wide range of saturation, that's one kind of painting. And there's many examples. But what if I want a painting where I have a narrow range of hue, could be monochromatic, where I have a narrow range of value, where it's just all half tones, not too light, not too dark, and a narrow range of saturation. Let's say it's all very muted. So knowing these categories of hue, value, saturation becomes the next level of understanding about color and color mixing. It's a very complex language. And here's the thing, in my three-day workshops, the guiding principles, I try to do my best to lay them out in three days. At a bare minimum, you need at least three full days. And then people realize, oh my gosh, I now began to understand how to explore this vast universe with just several guiding principles. Some of what I think I hear you saying is that once you know what those are and can put terms to them so that you can yes. look and think about it, those start to translate into mood. So now you know that if you look at a painting and feel a certain way, you can say, okay, what is happening with the value? What is happening with the hue? What is happening with the saturation? Why do I feel that way? And then yes. when you're going out to paint and you say, I want this painting to evoke X, you know how to do that. Absolutely true, because there are emotions to the work itself, and color does evoke emotions, very much so. You talk about color strategies. What are color strategies, and why are they useful? Well, it comes back to language, again, and understanding, but also guiding principles about how color interacts. One of the most important aspects of drawing and painting, but particularly painting, can be summed up in one word, and this is a critical word, and that is relationships. So, what do we mean by that? Nothing can be seen in isolation. Let's say you're drawing a still life, a series of objects. The biggest mistake a student can make is focusing on one object at a time. Let me draw the apple, now I'm going to draw the bottle, now I'm going to draw the drapery. Big mistake. You have to be devoting your attention to the relationships between these subjects and the spaces in between them, what we call the negative shapes or the figure ground relationships, at all times. So the eye is constantly moving as you're understanding the relationships between these various parts into the whole. Same is true of painting. doesn't matter if it's abstract or representational. You cannot just look at one area and decide, oh, I'm going to make a choice based on this one little area. You might put a blue, for instance, a certain blue in one one area, and because of the colors nearby it, it's not working. Where you put that same blue in a different area, it might work beautifully. There's no such thing as a bad color. There's just the wrong color in the wrong place. So again, always about relationships. Always, always, always. So that's part of the language, part of the guiding principles about understanding color is its relationships with other colors. What are color strategies and why are they useful to know? I'll answer this in some, with some specific exercises that we do. For instance, in the workshops that I teach, the first thing we do is we make a lot of color chips. And what do I mean by that? I have the students go from one primary to the next by mixing. Let's say I want them, I want you to go from yellow to red. And each student has a lot of six inch squares of paper that they're going to paint a solid color. In the course of one day, by the way, they generate dozens and dozens and dozens of colors over the course of about four hours of mixing. So I'll say, let's be basic. Let's go from yellow to red. So now they're going yellow, yellow, orange, orange, red. They can do it in six to eight steps. Now I'll set those aside. Great. 
Now let's go from yellow to blue through green. Now they're mixing yellow, yellow, green, green, blue, green. So they learn how to go from one primary color to the next and all the secondary and tertiary colors that are in between. Now let's go from red to blue. So now they're going through all the violets, red and cool violets. So what I just did with them is I had them mix up the rainbow of color, primary colors, secondary colors, tertiary colors. And so now they've set those aside. Now let's do it with cool primaries and you'll end up with a certain set of colors. Let's do it with warm primaries and you'll get another set of colors. So now they got two sets of colors, if that makes sense. Then we have to learn about four categories of color. The first category of color are what's known as the prismatic hues. Those are your primary colors, yellow, red, and blue. Your secondary colors, which are orange, green, and violet, which are mixed by the primaries. And your third category are what's known as the tertiary colors, yellow, green, yellow, orange, blue, green, red, orange, blue, violet, red, violet. Very important to know the color wheel. That's the first thing. If a painter is serious about color, they have to understand the color wheel inside and out what yellow, what red, and what blue can do. So we get all those colors mixed on these six by six inch. I'm getting to your question through a roundabout way on a six by six inch. So now they've got dozens of those. Then I say the next category is muted colors. Ah, what is a muted color? A muted color is any of the more saturated hues that we just discussed that are quieted down. So if you take a bright orange, for instance, how can you quiet that down a little bit and make it less saturated or less intense? There's three different ways you can do it. Four, actually. Add a small amount of white, it will quiet it down. Add a small amount of gray, it will quiet that down. Add a small amount of black, it will quiet it down. And you can add a small amount of its complement, which is the color directly across the wheel from it, in this case blue, touch of blue into orange, it will quiet it down. It will mute the color. So that's a category of color. So now we have two categories, prismatic and muted. The third category is a wonderful, one of my favorite categories, which are known as chromatic grays. So what are chromatic grays? And how do you achieve the chromatic grays? Well, let's go back to the prismatic hues. Those are the bright ones, bright green, bright blue, bright yellow green. Those are all very intense, bright colors. We learned how to mute them with white, gray, black, or the complement to get a chromatic gray to quiet them down even more you add more white more gray more black or more of the complement now the colors have really quieted down to the point where they're starting to quote gray out now this is tricky for some students because they think of gray as what you get when you mix black and white that's a gray but if you look at the world around you right now even in your room kelly most of the colors that you are seeing are chromatic grays there are very few prismatic, if any, and frankly, very few muted colors in our environment. The vast majority of the colors that we see in the world around us, natural and otherwise, are chromatic grays. They're warm or they're cool, they're light or they're dark, but they are chromatic grays. And if you look at the history of painting, most of the colors in paintings are either chromatic, muted, with just touches of prismatic hues. This is very important to understand because people are like, how do I get these? How do I use these? So by the end of our second day, they're mixing muted hues and they're mixing chromatic grays. And now they've got, seriously, I've seen some students, Kelly, in a day and a half, create over 100 to 200 colors, just like that. Because we mix pretty quickly, I show them how to mix very quickly. Now they've got, let's say, 100 to 200 colors on these six inch squares. 
and they're sitting aside. The next phase is what happens when you put one color next to another? Now we're back to relationships. What happens if you put that muted orange next to that chromatic green? What does that look like? What if you take that same muted orange and put it next to a vibrant green? How does that look? So just by the sheer act of putting one color in a square next to another square, what are they doing next to each other? This is like looking at Rothko. This is what Mark Rothko was doing. When you look at his paintings, the idea is simple. He's putting two, maybe three colors next to each other in this field. And what they're doing next to each other is what his work is about. It's that incredible, simple relationship between one given color and maybe one or two others. That's it. So that's where we start. That's our starting ground. And then from there, we begin to add more colors. So what is it now to have three colors next to each other? And so in my workshops, we keep things very geometric and very sort of formal. And I'll have them create compositions that are small so we can get through a lot of them eight to six inches square, and I'll say, make a composition, and here we're gonna get into it now. Make a composition with no less than six shapes, no more than nine. They have to be geometric, so we're working off the grid, vertical and horizontal. And make a composition in which all the colors are saturated, intense, and have a wide range of value. So they can do that, great. Now make a composition where all the colors are intense or saturated, but you have a narrow range of value. That's much more difficult. Why? Yellow is bright and it's light, and the values of the purples are dark. You can't use those if you're wanting going for a narrow range of values. You have to use greens and blues and so on. So all of a sudden, now they're beginning to realize if I say to them, make me a composition of six to nine colors, and I want them to be all chromatic grays, and I want them all to be warm, and I want them to have a narrow value range versus a wide value range. And these are the kinds of exercises that they start doing. It opens up many doors of seeing color. It's a long explanation to your, but I'm kind of dipping into some of the things that we do in the worships to understand color. The one word that's the key here, relationships. Why is it important to keep it simple in the beginning. And I ask this because we love color. Like That's why we're painters. And yeah. there's so many tubes of color available just in the art store that we can buy and bring home. And especially beginners, before you know how to mix the color, it seems easy. Just go buy the orange you need or just go buy the that's green right. you need. What is the yeah. advantage yeah. of keeping it simple, especially when you're first starting out? That's a good question. It's a great question. Let's go back to the what you mentioned, orange. So I'm having students mix orange by experimenting with different yellows and different reds, and they'll get different oranges. However, the orange that you can get in a tube, which is known as cadmium orange, that's the most intense color available to you. In other words, they can't mix an orange, which is as intense as that cadmium orange in a tube. Start with that. So I say to them, we're going to figure out what kinds of oranges we can experiment and understand by mixing different yellows with different reds. However, having done all that, and you'll see different oranges available to you, then when you're ready and you want to, go out and buy that cadmium orange if you want the most intense orange on the market. Let's go with green. Same thing. I have the mixed green with different yellows and different blues. Let's see all the different greens that we can get with just given yellows and given blues. However... There's a certain green that you can buy in a tube. It's the most intense you can get. You can use that tube later on down the road if you want to. And the same is true of violet. There's all kinds of violets that you can get in the tube that are more intense that you can get 
by mixing a given red or a given blue. But my feeling, Kelly, my premise is that before we do that, and there's nothing wrong with that, but before we do that, why don't we figure out what's possible with a given yellow and a given blue and a given red? Because as I said earlier, with any one yellow, one red, and one blue, you can mix thousands of colors. And that's something to be considered. Because if you, as a beginning painter, are putting out 10 to 12 colors on your palette, my God, it's being overwhelmed. And you don't need to. All the earth tones, let's talk about earth tones for a moment. Yellow ochre, beautiful color. Guess what? Yellow, red, and blue will get you there. Let's talk about raw sienna, another beautiful earth tone. Guess what? Yellow, red, and blue will get you there. Let's talk about burnt sienna, another beautiful color. Guess what? Yellow, red, and blue will get you there, plus white. Let's talk about raw umber, beautiful color. Yellow, red, and blue will get you there. Burnt umber. So all the earth tones that are available in tubes, you can learn to mix them with yellow, red, and blue. Does that mean you shouldn't have those colors in the tubes? Of course not. It's easy to squeeze out burnt sienna, and there you are. You're ready to go. But isn't it wonderful to know how to get the various shades of a burnt sienna, you know, through yellow, red, and blue. Painting the human figure, let's say painting, um, you want to paint a portrait of somebody. doesn't matter what their skin tone is. All the skin tones that are available, both warm and cool, are available in yellow, red, and blue, plus white. So I'm not suggesting to painters only use yellow, red, and blue on your palette, even if it's co-primaries, which gives you six. But what I am suggesting is start there. Learn what's possible just with that. And then add whatever colors you need to down the road. Now, eventually, all professional painters end up with a personal palette that they like. And it can be very minimal. Lucian Freud, for instance, fantastic painter. He only worked with a handful of colors ever, most of his career. What's called a limited palette. Other painters have, my gosh, 12, 13, 15, 20 colors on their palette. But that's because they know what the heck they're doing. And they know the role of each one of those colors. So I think by starting off with just a few, what we call a limited palette, it's much easier, much, much easier to know what you can do before adding. Why do you think people get scared of the idea of color theory, especially when we put that word theory behind it? Because if you start reading about color theory, your eyes start to glaze over. It can be very dense, it can be very complicated, and very hard to understand. That's why I avoid the word in my in my workshops. In fact, the book that I work from a lot is called Color uh, Workshops. It doesn't use the word theory. So there's a lot of theory behind color and how we perceive color and how color works as light. But I'm more interested in the practical application of color mixing and seeing color. So... I'll give you another example. After about day three of the workshop, I'll say, let's go outside for a little bit and let's bring a viewfinder. A viewfinder is a piece of paper that's been cut with a little window inside, either rectangle or square. I'll say, let's use this viewfinder and look at anything that's in front of you. It could be, it doesn't matter if it's architecture or if there's nature or maybe there's some buildings or cars or whatever, but just look at just a sliver of what's out in front of you and let's begin to identify the colors we're seeing. Now, when I do it here at my studio, I have some industrial buildings in the foreground, and then I have a river in the middle ground, and I have some hills in the background of where I'm, I'm up on a second floor here. So they can see the foreground, the middle ground, and the background, and they go, oh, the foreground, it seems to be a chromatic 
gray out of violet. It looks like it's a cool violet. How do you mix that? We'll talk about it. The river at this point of time, this day, looks to be a chromatic blue-green. Well, how do we mix that? And the sky seems to be a chromatic blue with a very light value. So all of a sudden, they're seeing phenomena, the world around us, and actually thinking about what colors might I mix to get what I'm seeing. Now, that's also needs to be understood that any given building, let's say, that we're looking at at 9 o'clock in the morning is different at 4 p.m. in the afternoon. Very, two very different colors. You see, going back to light. So I have a building out here that we look at, and in the morning, it's kind of this muted pink, but in the afternoon, it's a very different color. It's no longer muted, it's chromatic. So once you start mixing color, understanding color on a practical sense, not theoretical, but practical, then the real, quote, theoretical part comes, well, let's look at the world around us and let's identify. Next time you go into your kitchen, take a banana and look at it. That's not a saturated yellow. That is muted or sometimes chromatic. It's really about seeing. It's all about seeing. Do you think as an artist, learning the vocabulary helps you learn to see? Yes, I do. When you have a better knowledge, it gives you a really rich vocabulary. If you don't know much about color and you go into the studio, most artists mix randomly and they see what they've got and they use it. Great. Not a problem. But what if you get stuck and you're not sure how to even achieve a given color or understand color relationships? Well, now you're stuck because you don't know what to say and you don't know how to say it. So I am not suggesting for a second that when we're in the studio that we're always in our left brain, which is the analytical part. Some people can do that. Most cannot. Most of the choices we make are fairly intuitive, I would say. This is true in all the arts. But having the intellectual understanding, having the analytical understanding is so useful to help you along the way. Every time I mix a color, I'm still surprised. Every single time, I'm still surprised. And that's what's so delightful, you know? I have a good idea of what I'm going to do, but every single time, it's always like, oh, let me try this, let me try that. So there's still this business of, oh, let me try this, and let me try that. Oh, that doesn't work. Scrape it off. That doesn't work. Nah, oh, let me try this, let me try that. So working through the um, mistakes, the failures, making the adjustments and the corrections, that's always going to be. That's just the nature of the beast. So do you think that there's then, and I think I know your answer to this, but do you think that it's important then to practice color by itself? So in that left brain, in the super conscious, what is happening? What am I seeing? How do I mix that? To practice it in simplified isolation so that then you can go back into a painting and use it intuitively? I think it's useful, and I'll give you a good example. So one of the exercises I do, I don't do this in my three-day workshops because we don't have enough time to do them, but I do them at the, at the college I teach. There's a chart that the students can make in which they explore what happens when you mix yellow, for instance, to its complement, which is violet, but also what happens when you mix yellow to its near complement, which is a red-violet, and what happens when you mix yellow to another near complement, which is blue-violet? So now think about this. I'm having my students mix yellow to red-violet, violet, and blue-violet. They're going to get a really interesting array of colors. Not only that, I have them do it in about 10 steps. So they're mixing a small amount of violet into yellow. They get a certain color. More 
violet gives them another color. So they're having these spectrums of color going from yellow to red violet, yellow to violet, and yellow to blue violet. Not only that, with each color that they mix, they add white three times. Now, in that one simple spectrum exercise, they've got about 100 colors. Now, I say to them, great, guess what? That could be a painting. Because now you have a library, a resource of color that you can refer to. And not only that, you can say, this is the palette I want to use for a given painting. And it can work beautifully. Why does it work beautifully? Well, because you started out with a limited palette, number one. You're only using yellow, red, and blue. And you're creating a painting based on this wonderful, you've got 100 colors that you can choose from. And they're all going to work together nicely. They're going to play nicely. Now, once you start putting out five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten colors on your palette and start intermixing, you can get cacophony. You can get a muddy mess. And so that idea of, oh, my God. So now my students, they've done a number of the exercises. They've gone from yellow to violet. They've gone from orange to blue. They've gone from red to green and all the permutations. Guess what? Now on their walls at their studios, they can have enormous color to refer to. Will they use it all the time? Maybe yes, maybe no. But I would submit that after a while, you don't even have to think about it too much. Just intuitively know, oh, I've got this color. I need to add a touch of this other color to get where I want to go. That's equally important. And that's where the intellect feeds into the intuitive. It's a musician's the same way. The more you read music and listen to other music and, you know, you have to do your scales, obviously. But eventually, that's how you get to the point where you don't, you don't even have to think about it so much. Uh, just listening to what you're saying and thinking about that sensation of freedom and possibility. And some of that is conscious and some of it is intuitive. And then compared to that, how you feel as a beginner where you're like, you're still putting your hand in paint and you're physically mixing the colors and that's confusing. And then you're still trying to compose the thing and that's confusing. <laughs> and, and it's hard to believe that when you're feeling that feeling of, ah, that, yeah. that someday you can get to something that you're composing. So not that there's not always frustration in art. We sort of talked yes. about that before, but that there is a point in the future where you can feel it more than think about, yeah, the feeling yes. versus the thinking. Yes. Yes. On that note, one of my favorite scenes, there was a movie, uh, Mr. Holland's Opus. Do you uh -huh. know this film? Yeah. Do you remember the actor uh, who that uh, was? Richard that the high school Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus. Here's the scene. I love it. Here's the scene. Richard Dreyfus is a high school music teacher, and he's working with this young girl. He's working with her one-on-one, -on -one, and she's playing clarinet, and she's trying to learn this piece. When she comes to this one place in the piece, you can see her brow is furrowing and she's and it squeaks she doesn't make it through the passage and it always like oh damn you know she just can't get that one passage right and finally he says to her you know what you know this piece but you're overthinking this one passage and that's why it's not working i want you to shut your eyes and just play the piece and she does it beautifully so the moment she's just trusting herself to let go with what she knows she plays it and there's no problem in that one passage. There's some truth to this, that sometimes it is a matter of letting go and trusting. And even if you screw up, okay, you screwed up. So let's try to make it right. 
I will also say, and I'll put a plug in for this, that I'm a huge proponent with the people that I work with to look at as much art as they possibly can and to really look and to look carefully. I even have my students do studies of master paintings and then they do their own version. They get to pick who they want to work with. But let's say a student of mine likes Edward Hopper, great painter. And I'll say, okay, let's look at his paintings. And let's say they choose one of Hopper's paintings of an early morning scene of a desolated street in the morning light of the sun. He's using these beautiful colors and they go, wow, let me do that. So now I say, good, why don't you do a study of that? I don't like the word copy, so I'll say, do a study. So they'll do a study of Edward Hopper's early morning scene, and they'll paint it stroke for stroke, color for color. they got to learn how to mix all the colors that Hopper mixed, and they got to go stroke for stroke, and they got to do an exact replica. Now, this is something that artists have been doing for centuries, so it's nothing new. In fact, it's old school. I'm very old school. Then I'll say, okay, now, good job. What did you learn? Well, I learned this, I learned that. Great. Now I want you to find an early morning street scene on your own, and now you've got to paint it in the style of Hopper, but make it your own. So make sure the light looks good, make sure that you're getting that right desolate street scene. And they do this and all of a sudden it starts to click, oh, I can use these colors. You mean he's exaggerating? Yes, of course he's exaggerating. Oh, you mean he's taking artistic license? Of course he's taking artistic license. You see, they don't even realize they could do that. I had one young woman once, Kelly, who was really struggling painting the figure. She was always very tight, couldn't loosen up, wanted to, but didn't know how. I said, okay, here's the thing. I want you to do a study of Oskar Kokoschka's painting. He's this loose Austrian expressionist. So she did. She did a painting of Kokoschka. And the next week, she was in class just ripping through the color and having a grand old time. Why? She was given permission because she did a study of Kokoschka. And she realized, oh, my God, I can put blue into the shadows. Of course you can. Look at Matisse. He did all kinds of crazy things. So by looking at art and by looking at other artists, any painter can realize, oh, my God, so this is what's possible. This is how they did it. And this is the history of art. All great artists looked at the artists before them, every single one of them. So I'm a big advocate of that. I learned more, or I learned as much, I should say, from looking at other art and artists as I did from all my professors combined. You know, I did it on my own. I just traveled and I looked and I studied and I sketched. And I realized, oh my God, every artist I'm looking at that I really love has something to offer me. You see, and this is the lineage of art. It's not about ancestor worship. It's about the lineage of art. It's about seeking connections that we all seek. We all seek connections. That's, that's what humans do. We seek connections. And I tell my students, look, if you want to be a serious painter, you cannot afford to be ignorant. Shame on you if you are. You will always be limited. You have to really look at a lot of great work and not just on Instagram, for God's sake. Go into the galleries, go into the museums, get your face right up in there and see what these folks are up to. And it'll open up doors. Why is understanding color important for an artist? Well, if you work in black and white, you don't need to. <laughs> and there's plenty of people who do. <laughs> no, I mean it. I mean, there's plenty of people who decide, you know, it's not that important. However, if that's not your choice, then you are making a choice to say, okay, what well, color is going to be part of what I do? But let me back that up a little bit too, Kelly. I'll go back with what I said earlier. There's no reason, by the way, that an artist can say, you know what, I don't want to study color theory. I don't want to do workshops. I don't even want to go to school. I just want to put down color and have fun. Great. Enjoy it. No reason why you can't. 
no reason why you shouldn't. And I mean that. And you'll have a grand old time. And maybe you'll create some great work behind it. doesn't matter. If you're enjoying yourself and the color is speaking to you, just enjoy it. On the other hand, if you're someone who really wants to understand color as language and what you can achieve by understanding the fundamentals and the principles of color, that will require some effort. You might want to take some classes at a nearby junior college or find an instructor who can help you take a workshop like people who work with me who are work with others. They learn a lot and then they're off and running. And I, I really encourage this for those who feel that they just want to learn more because the moment someone can show you, here's how it's done, then you're off and running, you know, and you can create your own system. One quick anecdote on this. Years ago, I taught at a junior college in San Mateo. And I had the students do some color mixing charts, like I told you. And then I was working with a young, actually, she was an older student, Annie was her name. And she got very excited. Well, I left that school and came back about five years later just to visit. And Annie was still taking classes there. And she says, Mark, I have to show you something. We went to her locker. She brought out a notebook, which was a pretty good sized notebook. She had been doing color exercises on her own, devising her own systems, and showed me page after page after page of color notations and possibilities. Then she showed me her paintings, and they were wonderful. They were, I mean, five years or so, she had just made great leaps in her paintings because she began to understand color and color relationships in the language. So it does, it does allow you to kind of suffer less. Because <laughs> let's be honest, it can be really frustrating. And I, you know, I, I still get frustrated. But then you learn how to read your paintings and you go, okay, that orange is just the wrong orange. If I just tone that down or brighten it up, it's going to work much better. Oops, sorry about that. So, yeah, it's about having tools at your disposal. A bigger toolkit. How about that? A better toolkit. So when you need a small wrench instead of a big wrench, you've got it at your disposal. You can find more about Mark Eanes at his website, markeanes.com. While you're there, you can check out his workshops. We talked about them a ton today, and you'll find more information there. Um, you can also find him on Instagram or Facebook. So thank you so much for joining us today, Mark. It's my pleasure, Kelly. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. Head to learn to paint podcast slash podcast slash episode 11 for show notes. You'll find examples of the exercises Eanes talks about in his interview. And while you're there, add your name to the newsletter list. You'll get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. See you in a few weeks. Keep painting, keep painting, keep painting. Happy painting.